Hello everyone, how are we? Welcome to the Culture Tent, the penultimate time with Marxism here before we go to the final rally. Um, this meeting, Manny, well first of all, I'm Rory, I'm uh, from the SWP in Glasgow, um, and we're here. Uh, Rainey and Eve Smith is going to be talking about politics of fashion, what we the revolution. Obviously, I've been sent here because I've got no fashion sense, so I'm here for some genuine tips. Uh, <laughs> this, is a, this is a very political meeting, and it's been recorded for um, Rena's podcast, Future Heist, so, um, but we'll hand over to Rena. Thank you. This is Future Heist, conversations with people making change. My name is Rena Neve Smith. Thank you everyone so much for coming um, to today's meeting. Last year there was a really amazing meeting by our comrade Tony Sullivan all about fashion, which I thought was one of the most exciting. So I'm hoping to build on some of the discussion that um, happened last year and to offer my own take. So to start, when I tell people that I work in fashion, the first thing that usually people say is that they don't know anything about it. And I think that fashion has the image of being this elusive mystery that happens away from what the rest of us do. It's this thing that is kind of like its magical own space. But actually, the fashion industry is huge. One billion people worldwide work in fashion. When you consider the, ga the garment workers, the farmers growing crops like cotton, in retail, in shipping, the whole thing is one in six people worldwide. In the short time we have, I'm not simply going to condemn fashion. I think if you're here already, you understand that no subject is unworthy of political discussion. There's been some amazing talks here in the culture tent over this Marxism. And I think especially with fashion, it's been dismissed in the past as women's stuff. I think we have to think about that. You probably also know how much fashion pollutes. Fashion is second only to the oil industry in how much it pollutes. The fashion industry uses vast, vast quantities of water in every stage, from growing the crops to dyeing the fabric to making the garments. And the water pollution from industrial dyeing processes, for example, is causing havoc in ecosystems in countries like China where there's no legislation or little legislation to stop it. Being pumped into water supplies for whole communities of people, and there's some excellent documentaries like True Cost that show the, the physical ailments that people are getting, like the cancers that people are getting in communities around uh, factories. So in this talk, I want to think about um, the way capitalism has shaped our understanding of clothing in general, as well as to go through some style ideas for the day that we take back control. I'm not going to cover everything, it's a, it's a massive area, and I hope I'm going to raise some uh, points for discussion. But I want to unpick some terminology, first of all. So at the base level, you have clothing, and we're all familiar with clothing. Along with food and shelter, clothing is a basic human need. But societies embellish certain clothing with meaning. It can be an expression of power. In court, judges and barristers wear wigs and gowns that have little to do with what people wear, but it's part of the theatre of justice being seen to be done. Children are expected to, to wear school uniform correctly, and I think as socialists, uh, we might think of this as part of school's role in preparing children for the workplace. And of course, clothing's imbued with notions of gender, uh, the, think of the fight that trans people have just to wear the things that they feel most comfortable in without suffering pu punishment as a result. This shot is um, some boys who uh, protested during, I think it was the heat wave last year. Girls could wear skirts, they had to wear long trousers, which was uncomfortable, so they protested by wearing skirts, which I think is fantastic, because it, it kind of... Um, it is, yeah. Um, it kind of... Uh, it lays bare the hypocrisy of, of, of the gender... Um, binaries and also of, of school uniform in the first place, I think. Um, and lastly, the hijab is a sacred garment in Islam, but is seen as a marker of oppression by some people on the right. Um, but for others, it's a symbol of resistance. And I think we should protect our people's right to wear what they want. And I hope that on, on the day of revolution, we'll be joined by plenty of women in hijabs. So I think we can think of countless examples of where clothing is important. Um, so style is the art of dressing, and unlike some, I don't think that style would just go in a socialist state. I think how much we care about style comes down to personal differences. It's a creativity like music, like art. 
And I would be surprised if there is anybody in this room who hasn't at some point felt a connection to fashion and to style. And often it's through music, even if it's not through the fashion streets, through something like music where you kind of, you find your tribe, you, you get a lot of pleasure from wearing the clothes that, that, um, that is part of a group that you feel most comfortable with. So fashion is a way of consuming clothing that's been created under capitalism. It's interesting to note, for example, that women's silhouette didn't really change through a lot of history. But under capitalism, you had the invention of the suit, men going out into the world of work, and it's more like a uniform. Men's style becomes standardised, whereas before they were wearing all kinds of wigs and frills and all kinds of things. Whereas women, the onus was put on women to, to kind of to consume style and to, to look at pretty things. And I think under capitalism, um, there's, there's a much more rigid hierarchy than in other art forms between what's considered desirable and what there's a lot of work put into and a high price. Generally speaking, and I think this is up for debate, but you can say that generally speaking, designer clothes are more interesting, they're more intricate, they're more imaginative, they're more detailed, and they're so much more expensive. It is very, you know, people say, oh, you can go to Primark and you can be fashionable, but the, you know, the clothes in Prada are beautiful. And we have to think about that kind of, that, the way that, for example, with music, I don't think you have such a, such a clench on kind of the, the most interesting things by the super rich. I think in fashion, it really is quite a tight hold. And a lot of feminists over time have kind of, also wanted to kind of reject fashion completely, but I think that leads out um, complexities to the matter at hand. So to command, how do, how do these brands command such high, high prices then? I think part of it is, is through theatre, and I've got a couple of examples here of the Chanel show. Chanel really did this thing of creating a lot of theatre around the show. So this is, um, this is a show that they had in uh, the beginning of this year. where the whole, So every single Chanel show is always held in the same place. It's the, it's the Grand Palais in Paris. But they do these incredible um, kind of scenes. And so this one was, uh, was like a, a ski chalet thing with fake snow and everything. And if we go to the next slide. Uh, this one was one where they did an airport. You know, you even had people working behind checkout desks. And you had, you know, the models walking past. It was like a big airport. Ooh, Chanel Airlines. And they even, in spring, summer 2015, did a street protest because it's so chic. Um, so they did this whole thing where they did like the streets of Paris and then the models were kind of holding up signs with um, various, yeah, vote for yourself. I think what we can understand there is that it's an exercise in branding. What they're doing is creating power, economic power behind this world of, this word of Chanel. Because actually, in, you've got a kind of pyramid structure where at the top, you, Chanel do obviously sell 15,000 pound haute couture gowns to a very small audience of very rich people but further down the chain they also sell the license to produce things like sunglasses that the likes of you and me buy so they make much more money actually by selling things like sunglasses and that's created through this power of oh my god it's chanel you know and um, they create this kind of magic around their brand name which then enables them to to uh, sell these things what if you don't buy any Chanel, though? Not even lipstick, not even sunglasses, anything. I want to show you a scene from a film called The Devil Wears Prada, in which a woman finds... It's a film, if you haven't seen it, about a woman who finds herself... who considers herself a serious journalist, who finds herself working in a magazine that's based on American Vogue for an editor who's based on Anna Wintour. And in this scene, the editor-in-chief is going through the clothing selected for a photo shoot, and she's trying to decide between two belts. An assistant holds up two belts and says, you know, which one should I choose? And this serious woman kind of laughs, and she's like, the belts look the same. And the editor-in-chief turns around and says, listen, right, these two belts, you think you're above this, you think you're above this fashion stuff. That blue jumper you're wearing, okay, that blue was a blue that was used by Oscar de la Renta on the runway in 2005, whatever. And then Yves Saint Laurent did it the next season, and then some more designers did it the season after that. And then, you know, it ended up, that blue ended up on a jumper in a sale rack in a shop where you picked it up. So you laugh, you think this isn't relevant to you, but actually that blue was selected for you by the people in this room. So this does have something to do with you. That's the point of the scene. I think that what that conversation shows us is first of all, it explains that business model, and that's how fashion, how fashion works, where these fashion shows that happen, all these brands like Primark and Marks and & Spencers and H&M and Zara, they take inspiration from what the designers are doing, and they produce these mass market clothes that we then buy. And even if people don't know that something's based on whatever it is, it still is, and that's, that's the, the kind of ecosystem 
of, of ideas that kind of filters through capitalism. So that's what that scene is telling us. And it, in a way, it suits the brands to be imitated because it, it kind of confirms their status symbol as, as something to be imitated. And they can continue to command these high prices. Of course, if the brands like Marks and Spencer's or Zara copy it too closely, then they're going to get sued. The fashion cycle can be applied to other industries as well. You can see the way food, cars, fitness, lots of products are sold to us through this idea of like, this is in now, we have to buy this now. Okay, that's gone now, stop buying that, let's, let's uh, buy the next thing. It's about inbuilt obsolescence, it's about a calendar of consumption. Um, so what does this scene leave out? The idea that single designers come up with things like cerulean blue leaves out, as we know, as Marxists, it, the alienation in the workplace, this stuff is made not by the people in that room, it's made by the workers in, as I'm sure you're all aware, pitifully low wages. And the reason why the wages are so low in fashion and the working conditions are so terrible is because it's a very complicated system to make clothing. Every single component of what you're wearing has actually been made individually, so the fabric has to be the, the crops have to be grown, the fabric has to be made, then it has to be dyed, then it has to be printed, then it has to be assembled. You know, if you think about all the stages of actually making a garment, and in between that, you've got, like, back-and-forth orders between... It's, it, each stage is actually broken down into individual businesses are doing that and then selling it on, selling it on. It's a long supply chain, basically, um, before it ever arrives in the shipping and then there's retail and all the rest of it until it arrives in the shop. So it's, it's a very precarious supply chain. So you might have heard of this is a, a collapse of a factory um, in Bangladesh in 2013. Tony Sullivan mentioned it in his meeting as well last year. It was over a thousand workers died in this factory collapse, and it was by no means the only atrocity of its kind. What had happened on the day was gar garment workers actually tried to refuse to go to work because they could see the building was in such an awful condition, but they were threatened with loss of pay. And that happened in, in Bangladesh, where there's actually an industrial police force to ensure that to break up strikes because 80% of the economy is based on the ex exporting clothing. So, you know, you've got, you've got the government working to protect the capitalists, to, to enslave people, basically, in order to keep this machine running. Um, and it's not just the garment workers, farmers as well. There's, um, you can read lots of really interesting, really horrifying stuff about, about um, farmers who are... There's lots of farmers who end up committing suicide because they just they can't make any money and they can't live off the off the system as it is. I would argue that it also, that scene that we watched, um, it also, that idea that the designer comes up with all the ideas themselves, leaves out workers in another way, or the working class in another way. Designers are important, of course. It's a very creative role. But in fact, designers don't generate ideas all by themselves, at least not on their own. Um, there's talent in it, but actually, desi what designers do is they piece together ideas from lots of different sources. And one of those sources is by looking at what people are wearing. Um, and in fact, trend reporting is big business and trend kind of prediction is big business. There's a company called WGSN that sells trend reports for whatever, now it'll be like spring, summer 2022 or something. Um, for like 10,000 pounds a pop, they sell it to people who then are making money. The capitalist machine needs these ideas to be fed back into itself. And where do they look for these ideas? Partly where they look is to ordinary people. And I think, um, so people often ask me about the trend for ripped jeans uh, and what it means. And I think it's a really interesting one because jeans obviously started out as a, as a worker's garment in the 19th century. And they became a symbol of kind of American democracy and uh, casual wear in the 1950s. And then in the 1970s, uh, punk started to rip jeans. And denim's a fabric that you can rip and still wear. It's not like wool or something where if you rip it, it'll fall, fall apart. So... Um, anyway, so there was this trend for ripped jeans. And then what, oh yeah, so then the fashion industry is, is the fashion industry is really obsessed with the idea of like making, get something and then make it luxury. So if we go to the next slide. So then you have Dolce & Gabbana distressed jeans for 475 pounds. So that's how you end up with this like really ridiculous idea. Yeah, it's punk, but it's also really luxe. So it's, it's an example of how working class ideas are kind of sold back to us. And of course, the other, the other really obvious one is cultural appropriation. And here we have a white model wearing a Native American uh, headdress here on the Victoria's Secret runway. And on the other side, you have, uh, that was the Valentino Haute Couture show from last week in Paris. Um, and I believe that that headdress is inspired by um, South American design. 
And apart from obvious plagiarism like this, it forces us to ask the question of cultural appropriation. I think it exposes that idea of creativity being sold to people. Who owns these ideas? It's certainly not these big companies. Um, and how, how can you really sell creativity like this um, ethically? And it also asks, you know, I think it's, it's worth thinking about what we can and can't wear. Um, and I think there are, there are levels and grades of this. I mean, um, just because something's from a culture that's not your own, does that mean that you can't wear it at all? Something like a sari or tartan or... There's lots of different examples, but I, at the same time, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on cultural appropriation. I think that we have to do recognise that there's, for some, relig some communities, then garments hold sacred symbol symbolism... And there's also been a global imbalance of power between the people who've created ideas and the people then reselling them. So the Victoria's Secret thing is a good example of that. Victoria's Secret is an American company, and you've got lots of people who, indigenous American people, who are languishing in, in uh, reservations um, with little kind of life prospects. Kim Kardashian also wants to uh, trademark the word kimono as well, which is uh, for a new underwear line. Um, and also, and, and it also forces the question, so if something like this was made by a Native American person, would that you know, command the same price? Why is it that once a designer does it, it commands more of a price? Why also are, are, are black people and, and non-white people kind of excluded routinely from the, the fashion industry? There's you know, and models and, um, and across the whole of kind of the design side of things, then black people have a real problem getting into the system, and I think we have to think about that. Another thing I wanted to throw in before I go through some, um, some revolutionary styles is about um, kind of gender issues. And I think you constantly hear refrains in capitalism of, like, like just be yourself. Uh, but that only if you... That means buying new things. Um, so I think this... Um, Right, like body hair removal, I find um, really interesting. Um, what I, what's really funny to me is in, in adverts for removing body hair, you usually don't see any body hair. So even though this woman's shaving her leg, there isn't any like leg hair to be shaved. So um, and because and even so, actually, it's a really good example of how fashion over the last hundred years. It was really when men went to war in in during the Great War where razor companies like Gillette started selling to women because they needed a market to sell products to. And that's when you started to have women remove body hair. And now, I mean, I have friends and colleagues who remove like, hair from like, all kinds of places and consider hair to be unnatural on women. It's, it may be a lot of things, but it's not, it's not unnatural, is it, when you think about it? And so I think it, it also raises the question of how, and it might be something people want to think about in the discussion, is of how the fashion industry particularly affects women and particularly plays on women's insecurities in order to make a profit, I would argue. Eco-fashion is providing an alternative to the endless cycle. Um, and there's been some great people in fashion who are trying to make a difference. So this is um, Bethany Williams, who's a, a, a designer, um, who I did a podcast interview with. Um, she is... She involves um, kind of different people, like uh, people who are retrain uh, prisoners who are retraining, female prisoners who are retraining, um, getting teaching them kind of dressmaking skills. Also, people in rehab teaching them dressmaking skills and um, working with them at the production side. Also, using lots of recycled materials, and then also putting profits from what she does back into different charity organisations. And I think she's somebody who really tries to. She's making clothes, but she's really trying to think about her place in the world and, and what she's doing to help other people. But there again, eco-fashion can be very expensive. And the idea in eco-fashion is that you buy better. You, you don't go to H&M, you don't go to Primark. You try and go to designers like Bethany who are, who are making better things and you just buy that. But is that enough to change the system at its root? Is it enough to just, um, to just buy better? Um... And last one, or next one. Um, there's a new film out at the minute, which is a horror comedy. I don't normally watch horror. Uh, it's called In Fabric, and it's really interesting. And um, I don't know if you can see this very well, but there's a woman kind of um, sewing at a machine, and there's a thread coming from her arm into the, the fabric. The film is about a cursed dress, and anybody who kind of gets this dress, starting with this woman, um, it just like wreaks havoc on her life. Um, and it's, it's a horror comedy, so it's quite funny. 
But I thought it was actually a really good metaphor for the fashion industry because it seems to me, especially at the minute with, you know, loads of fashion goes into landfill or it gets sent out to, it gets resold in secondhand markets in countries like Africa and decimates the, the economy there. So you actually have a circle where clothing is made in Asia, comes to, comes to the West and then goes out to, yeah, countries like Africa and... Um, it just seems like we're in this like, endless cycle. And it seems like if you, if you want something new, you want to participate in fashion, okay, buy something new, but then you're still, you're part of the system and, and you can get rid of it. But where, where, I mean, where do our clothes end up? They're, they're ending up in, in, um, in landfill, etc. And it, it sort of, I thought that cursed dress interesting idea was quite interesting. Um, and also this, this image of the woman's blood um, going into the garment, um, the garment workers that I was speaking about earlier, it is mainly women who work in these, um, in these factories and, and also that whole thing of, of does fashion affect women more? I would argue that yes. I think it's quite a powerful image. But the revolution won't be a fashion show. So uh, I'm going to go through some... How much time do I have left? Ten minutes, great. So I'm going to go through some, um, some fashion uh, examples from the past when people have used style or style has been used uh, to express a political statement or a revolutionary sentiment. Um, I'm going to start with the sans-culottes from the French Revolution. Um, so this um, thing on, the, on this side, um, they were different from... They were called the sans-culottes, which means um, without culottes. Culottes were the breeches that the aristocracy wore. I'm sure you've seen all those oil paintings of the, of the silk um, kind of shorter trousers with the white... Um, stocking thing underneath. So they, they didn't wear that. They wore trousers, pantalon, and they were the revolutionaries of the French Revolution, and they were known by that because it was a kind of shorthand for their democratic ideals, their pro-working class um, viewpoint. And on the other hand, you've got, on the other side, you've got a cartoon from 2018, which says, sans culotte, 1789. So without culotte, and then with gilet, um, 2018. And I think it is actually a good parallel to draw because... The, the trousers in 1789 were a working-class garment, and the, the yellow vest, I think, for everyone, before the yellow vest movement kicked off, high-vis was just something that you saw everywhere. It's, it's, like a, it's something you don't really pay attention to because it's, it, it's a worker's garment, definitely. Um, but then it kind of had this political meaning that just made it completely different. Um, I just wanted to um, speak briefly about China as well. I think uh, the Chinese revolution was quite interesting and one maybe to think about in the discussion. The style in China was, um, in, uh, before the revolution, was um, very ornate. Here you have um, a woman with bound feet. One thing that um, Mao did was that, um, you know, women were, to an extent, liberated um, in, in Chinese from things like, the, you know, the, the process of binding feet, for example, was um, made illegal. Um, but in terms of style, the, the, the Chinese Cultural Revolution was about this kind of uh, very simple style. It was very utilitarian. It was very pro-working class. But there was an idea, especially in the 1950s, of any fashion was, uh, was bourgeois and capitalist and, and shouldn't be shouldn't be indulged in. And so you have this very uh, utilitarian, pro-worker uh, ideal. But I would ask, is, is that the kind of socialism that we want, where it's like, this is the look, and you need to sign up, subscribe to that? And what happens when creativity is kind of bottlenecked into one idea of, of maybe what's gone before? I think, that, I think we can do that better than that in our revolution. I think it can be uh, more fun. And um, the, Black Pan the Black Panthers were... Uh, um, a group who definitely used style. It is worth saying, of course, that style isn't central to any of these uh, people's ideas. It's not like that wasn't the reason why they were getting out of bed in the morning. But they had, so they had this anti-war, anti-capitalist um, ideology, but they wanted to support it with a style. Um, so the Black Panthers wore black berets, they wore leather jackets with wide lapels, they wore dark glasses often. And the Black Panthers have been really inspirational to black people from then on. There was a talk last night about um, hip-hop, um, which was really interesting here in the culture tent, where they were talking about how basically Public Enemy, the hip-hop group in the 1980s, when they had a, a parade in, I think it was Philadelphia, he had loads of guys coming out in their, in their Panther stuff, getting really excited about them. And it was kind of, it's really interesting how when people feel an affinity to something, they want to express that through, through clothing. Beyonce is somebody as well who's used um, aesthetics of the, of the Panthers. And I think it is really interesting, it's something we might want to think about in the discussion about, on the one hand, I think it is a middle finger to Trump's America, 
America. I think she is saying, uh, she's kind of asserting her, um, like making a political statement basically. But on the other hand, Beyonce's a billionaire and you know, is she selling this idea? Um, punks is one that I couldn't um, fail to mention. Punks obviously challenged um, what went before and they did um, do that through clothing. They deliberately had this really distressed look. I think a lot of people still take inspiration from um, the punks. Vivian Westwood has been credited as the kind of chief architect and stylist of the punk movement. And she still you know, would see herself very much as a punk. But I think she's an interesting figure to think about because, again, she sells really expensive dresses. She's a dame. Um, it's interesting how these ideas get pulled back into capitalism and it's really hard to keep the kind of fresh energy of it. Protest t-shirts, I think most of us in this um, room or, or this tent will have a, will have a, a t-shirt that expresses um, a political idea. This is the designer uh, Catherine Hemnet meeting Margaret Thatcher wearing a t-shirt that says, 58 don't want Pershing, um, which was a, uh, something to do with a nuclear war, I think. Oh. Missiles. But there you go, you know more than me. It's like some kind of political statement. It's really uh, good. <laughs> I, knew, I knew most of it. This is Jean-Paul Gaultier wearing a kilt. Um, I think that in recent times as well, the idea around uh, gender has been played with a lot. People are, are starting to question um, things that we wear, but at the same time, there is a, still a lot of resistance to that. This is a still from a film called Paris is Burning, which is a really interesting look at the drag scene in, in the 1980s. There's a real cultural fascination with drag at the minute. And my question to you is, the, the whole thing about drag, and it, it is in some ways punk in its kind of um, embryonic state, because it's about taking on this idea that women can do one thing and men can do another. But at the same time, what if, if, if it's also about consuming more and men be, then being told that they need to wear more makeup, is that then a problem? And I think it, it kind of does throw up contradictions as well. Um, this was a protest done by... Um, uh, this was a rap artist who, whose name escapes me right now. But he was basically he was asked to, um, to walk on the runway for Dolce & Gabbana. Um, and what happened was he found out that Dolce & Gabbana had had this whole uh, racial um, scandal where they'd... Um, They've been embroiled in scandals, quite a few scandals um, along the way. One of them, for example, was um, a really patronizing advert um, that was released in China. Um, and social media is an amazing thing for calling these things out. So he did the show anyway, but he, he, he literally used his body to, to kind of write this protest on it. And he took off his shirt in the middle of the show, uh, which was a brilliant moment. People use clothing as well in protests. So the, we've got some women here uh, protesting against the changes in um, laws on w women's reproductive rights and using the imagery of the, of the handmaid's tale. Um, these are, on the one hand, you've got the, the pink pussy hats. I don't know if anybody ever seen pictures of those um, that were worn on the protests against Trump's inauguration. And then on the other side, you've got um, trousers that actually, I don't know if you can see that, but there's, there's um, Janelle Monáe in the middle and some dancers. And then on either side, she's got these trousers that kind of look like a vagina. And they've got <laughs> big, like, big pink kind of shapes. Uh, and she, in her music, is very political and talks about, um, you know, she's uh, very anti-Trump. It's good. So it doesn't exist in isolation then. Style doesn't exist in isolation. It needs ideas, it needs context that's neither good nor bad on its own. We can't say style's good, style's bad. It's like clothing. Clothing on a hanger is empty. It needs a body to wear it. And just like that, it, clothing needs an ideology. And under capitalism, I think style has really been um, put into just making money. It's been subverted for that. For the revolution, I think we need to, to think about what we're going to wear for sure, but to pretend that there's just one look for the revolution, I think is to perpetuate a really boring tradition that those at the top know what's to wear and that they'll tell everyone else. Um, I think it's going to be a collective act of people coming up with an aesthetic that makes us feel good about ourselves. And we'll also, in a social state, I think, um, reconnect to actually making clothes ourselves. It won't be so um, disconnected between the wearer and the maker. Um, I don't think in the revolution we should destroy what's gone before. Therefore, I'll be wearing an original Chaparelli pinched from some <laughs> capitalist bastard. <laughs> um, 
Um, I also think that we need to reach out to people in the fashion industry. We need to think about how we can unionize. I think we need to reach out to people on zero hours contracts. There's lots of people in retail, for example, it's a very precarious working environment. How can we open up the fashion industry as well to ideas about change? And how can we reach out to countries like Cambodia where you risk being beaten to death by police for campaigning for the minimum wage? In conclusion then, to quote the usual suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And I think we can understand the fashion industry as capitalism's favorite disguise, where waste and suffering are hidden and consumers are bedazzled with constant bombardment of images of what to buy next. So what will you wear to the revolution? But most importantly, will you be there? Okay, th thanks very much. That was an incredibly interesting uh, meeting. Um, so we're going to come to the part of the meeting. If you want to turn to your, your neighbour, um, and we're going to just discuss for two or three minutes, and we'll bring it back for some open discussion. Okay, okay. So um, if you'd like to indicate, oh, I knew this was going to happen. Right, okay. Right, hold, keep, keep your, can you keep your hands up so I can try and write all this down? Yeah, so I'm going to take Kassam first. Betty, can, Mazim, sorry, can you keep your hands up while I write this down? Uh, hi, guys. Uh, first of all, it, this was amazing, okay? So it's just incredible. The, the, it's just the politics of style. I just want to say something. I didn't come in here to speak about this, but when you brought up all of these issues. One of the things is that I thought about the hijab, for example, in the Egyptian revolution, how uh, in, in, it, it happened. It, do, it did happen. I don't know why exactly. But so many of the younger girls uh, and the revolutionaries, uh, they took off their hijab. That's, that was very strange. But after the revolution was defeated, there were calls by the pro-regime, pro-Sisi people to have a demonstration to collectively take uh, off the hijab. And it was so very reactionary. So taking off the hijab at some point was, from at least the perspective of who did it, was very progressive and revolutionary, and on a, a year later, it was extremely reactionary, and I wrote uh, against it and saying how this is pro-CC and pro-actually killing the uh, Muslim brothers and pro-because and pro of the timing it did. But uh, what I want to say today is I want to ask you for your solidarity with one of our comrades. His name is Mohammed Ramadan. He's a lawyer. He's a left-wing lawyer, working-class lawyer, a revolutionary, and now he's in jail. And since December 2018, he's been in jail. Uh, and his mother is dying now of cancer, and people are having a solidarity campaign, not now even to let him out, to let him see his mother who's going to die, and the regime doesn't want it. It is because he put on a yellow gilet, and in his office, on his own, he took a picture, he took a selfie, and put it on his Facebook. This was enough, the politics of style here for them to catch him, throw him in jail, and now they don't want him even to see his mother because... And one of the things that infuriates you more is that on the Facebook of this solidarity campaign, sorry, I'll finish it up now, you find people from the right wing and the fascists and the pro-Sisi, and, and they say, no, he shouldn't be out. He knows exactly what he was doing. And that's talking about politics of style and revolution, counter-revolution. So I hope that we all express solidarity with Mohammed Ramadan, the left-wing working-class uh, lawyer. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. There's tons of hands, so I, I'm going to say sorry, because I'm not going to get to call you all, um, so unfortunately. Yeah, you really hit on something that I know quite a bit on at the end, so I want to talk a bit more about it. Um, talking about the way... Uh, that I've, that I've noticed that drag culture has really been brought into the mainstream. Ha, 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 ha. No, it hasn't. Uh, just because we just saw with the Met Gala that they had notes on camp this year, you know, with thousands and thousands of pounds of dresses, and, oh, isn't everyone, you know, like, being really gender non-conforming? It's like, yeah, the ultra-rich are um, looking something like uh, that frigging city out of... Oh, I, I, I forget from the movie. But, um, yeah, it's... Well, what I've noticed now, like, actually, as a drag performer, is that what is allowed is a very, very, very expensive form of drag, and it is only allowed as long as it's just a look, 
like actually being a performer, being part of the community, part of the industry, that isn't accepted. If you can put a lot of money into it, you know, the, the biggest drag performer in the world at the moment is RuPaul, who is pretty casually transphobic. So you can perform these things, you can have a commodity, you, you can sell back, you know, looks from the queer community. You can't actually be part of that. And it's, it's one of those, like, you know, they're more than happy to take these things from any portion of society that tries to make something up. But if you actually exist like that, you will not be part of it. You will not be part of the fashion. You will not even be allowed to continue creating the ideas, really, because you will be demonized for it. And I, I personally think this is only going to get worse in drag, because, like, the, the further it goes into just um, people who essentially spend four hours putting on a look, take a picture, take it off. Um, but, I mean, like, we've just seen Drag SOS that started here now. We get the British version of it. I actually know some of the queens on there. Um, God bless them. And, the, you know, the whole point is, like, oh, but they're, like, they're a bit different to the American ones. They look a bit edgier. They look a bit out there. And it's like, no, we're just trying to find a, like, slightly different version of the same crap. It's the same shit, different bin. Let's not pretend, like, this is new or interesting. So, yeah, like... No matter how they like try and sell it, there isn't a revolutionary or radical way to have these things. It will just be sold back to you. Thank you. Uh, women in front here, lady in red. Woman in red. It was a song. It was a song. Does this thing right? It was a really great talk, Rena, because. Growing up, as I did, I've always hated and felt totally repressed by what's known as fashion from the whole thing about body image. I know you talked about the lack of black and Asian and minority um, models who are on runways. But the, the, the one thing you didn't talk about is size. Size as in weight, as in that these clothes are designed for people who, well, yes, p people who look, quite frankly, emaciated. And that for a lot of young women and men growing up it's something you could never achieve or or look like any of that because your body doesn't look like that it's a very specific image and the other thing that i've always uh, found utterly disgusting about it you talked about designer clothes being something that are like a work of art and that's that they have the money and that's why they have the value they have in the money but the, i heard about a year ago about mulberry handbags which I don't know, but I presume they're very expensive leather handbags. And in order to maintain the price of these handbags, at the end of the summer, when you have to buy your winter handbag, they burn them. They burn the fashion to keep the prices high. So it, it's always been something I've really railed against. And then having a, a child who's a boy who wants to wear pink shoes or wants to wear maybe shoes that aren't black go into a shop and try and buy anything for boys that is that isn't restrictive so i've always seen fashion as something that is about what the rich can have and the thin and the beautiful conforming of that way and for the rest of us it's about being excluded it's about being bullied and about being made to feel that you're not good so having finished the miserable bit about it the talk was great because it did make you think yes when there's a revolution it will be open up, opened up to, to designing and wearing what we all want to wear in, it, in a much more positive way. So it was a great talk and thing. Yeah, down, down front and blue. Uh, yeah, great talk. Um, I, I think clothing has always been a class, uh, a battleground of class. Uh, from, from the minute kids go into a school and get told exactly what they have to wear, now they're being told where they've got to buy it from and what labels they've got on and whether their shoes are all black or whether they've got a, spick, a bit of uh, a different colour. Uh, but my favourite experience of class struggle and clothing was uh, in the seven, early 70s, a film called Cool Hand Luke. And if you remember, there was a phrase used by the prisoners to address address the, uh, uh, the the boss man, the man with the gun who could shoot you. And I worked in this uh, very noisy bottling hall in uh, Romford, Allied Breweries, and we had these jackets on. And if you remember the film, when you got too hot, you said, taking it off, boss, and you take your jacket off, yeah? Anyway, they showed the film uh, one Friday, uh, sorry, one, one Monday. On Tuesday morning, 
as the foreman's walking round, yeah, you could hear in the back, taking it off, boss, taking it. He'd never saw the film, but everybody else had. And it just brings hysteria. And I think that ability to use clothing as part of a struggle goes on and on and on. You know, when we talk about class struggle being hidden, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's obvious. I think, you know, you look around at demonstrations, you look at everything else, people are struggling with their clothing. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Fatima? I thought that was a fantastic talk. Thank you. Um, I think it's worthwhile pointing out as revolutionaries, one thing that defines us as human beings is creativity. Um, and it's something that's drummed out of us, as people said, at school and so on. But when you look at um, it, it, anthropological studies and so on of places, there are very few examples of what people would have worn. The idea that just ran around naked, of course, is a racist notion. But when you look at places like the Amazon and so on, of people who still have a degree of hunter-gatherer culture, the body adornments, you know, not just paints, but feathers and all sorts of wonderful things with a limited amount of technology or items they have. And I think it's really important as revolutions to understand that at every moment of our lives, our creativity is stymied. You know, and, and I think you did that really well in showing she didn't choose that blue top. It was chosen for her. And I think that's a fantastic piece of writing above everything else in terms of what capitalism does to people. Um, but, of course, if anyone thinks we're going to be dressed like Che Guevara after the revolution, they're idiots, because that is not what we're going to be doing. And it is an image, isn't it, of the revolutionary. The Black Panthers looked cool, but it was... It, yeah, I mean... It was over the top. Thank you, uh, Roger. You know, and you know what? It was a uniform, and we're not uniforms. You know, there is far more to us. And I, after the revolution, will be wearing wedding dresses. I can tell you that now. The idea that, well, we might have to fight, and so I might have to pin it up. But you know, I want to wear stuff that I really will not have the opportunity to wear now. Well, of course, we're all... You know, no one else to be made fun of or whatever, but you have a dream. You know, the revolution will inspire and, and, and you'll be able to be as creative as possible. And, of course, there are examples of that with the Russian Revolution. For the limited amount of technology at the time, in terms of what people drew uh, about what they wanted to wear, it's fantastic. So I do recommend people have a look at what, during the Russian Revolution, what people... It, aspired to wear and if you remember that most people probably had one suit or one dress for most of their lives at that time those um aspirations i think are really inspiring for us so we are creative people and um i i used to love fashion i don't know what happened i think i got comfortable in my middle age but yes up for fashion I wanted to talk about uh, more on the fashion industry, uh, like the alienation that happens um, to very like, plus-sized people and people of um, age and um, who are physically disabled as well. I know a lot when I go down the high street to look for clothing, I'm an extra large. I can't find any extra large. And if I do find one, it's expensive. Um, you know, it's all fancy and all that. And I know that when... I am the revolution. I will be wearing a lovely, gorgeous dress. Um, and I'll make sure that my lipstick will be from Poundland, which is a lot better. It's better quality. Um, so, yes, that, that's, that's what I'm going to be doing. And also we will be wearing it on Wolf and Forest Pride, which, I'll, which I'm doing as well. And I'll be making a statement on behalf of it, saying that as a plus-sized person... I will not be alienated, and the fashion industry and the, cap the capitalists can just fuck off. So, um, yeah, and that's what, what I want to really to put on that, um, really that, that perspective. And if you're interested in, obviously, in Wolf and Forest Pride, which is also about the fashion, going back to the fashion roots as well, as of a working class, um, please let me know, and I'll give you a leaflet um, as well. Yeah, uh, uh, after this, I don't want <laughs> in, to... Uh, in, I can't, I can't think. Okay, I'm thinking to finish now. Okay. Uh, and over, over there? Yeah. Oh, you've been? Okay. Um, I'll, I'll put you down. Uh, Yuri? 
I just wanted to ask um, Rena a question, really, which is, do you think that uh, fashion for the masses has become increasingly homogenised? And the reason I ask that is that when I was young and my fashion sense was forming, there were, the playground was a kind of battleground of different styles. You know, we had youth cults which were absolutely demarcated the playground. You know, mods in one corner, rude boys were in the other corner, and then the casuals became the growing force and they were in the other. And it, it was a time when the, what, what you wore and what you listened to were intricately connected and seemed to matter to us much more than anything else in the world at, at, at that time. And yet now when you look at the high street now, it seems, you know, looking down at people, looking across to people who are, you know, uh, 14, 15 years old now, they seem to dress increasingly in JD sports and that's it. You know, like it's basically like hip-hop has destroyed any other, uh, any, any other culture in terms of dress style. But I wonder whether that's just because of my age and I'm missing something or whether, some, or whether capitalism has dumbed down. And if capitalism has dumbed down, why is that? Thank you. Uh, just over here. Thanks. Yeah, I feel like I often go into meetings thinking I've got some sense of what I might say on the topic, and this one was like, it was a really, really fascinating uh, meeting, I thought, and just makes you kind of open up your mind quite a lot and think about the nature of how we relate to each other and how capitalism affects all that. And I was going to say something very similar to what Yuri just said, so I won't say all of it. Um, but one of the things I was kind of wondering about with that, I mean, if you think about schools, um, I think particularly in working class communities, but in general, it's the kind of microcosms of, you know, all the ideas that are pushed down, the kind of prevailing ideas of society um, that are sort of then played out. So if you think about how, like, questions of homophobia, sexism, racism can often play out in a much more sharp, kind of vicious way inside schools, even though often those are ideas that are not necessarily ones that are held very, you know, deeply or, or whatever. It's something that you're being fed. Um, and so we certainly had the same thing where, you know, you were either going to school in your trackies and your gold uh, knuckle dusters or you were going to school in your baggy jeans and your black eye eyeliner and stuff. And, um, you know, if you had two groups of friends that were involved in different things, you'd have to try and not bump into them in the same day, you know, because of what you're wearing and stuff. And it, I think that's a, a really kind of funny but also narrow and restricting thing. And I wondered whether um, you think, because uh, the school that I went to is quite a working class school um, in Ibrox and Glasgow, whether that's something that plays out more sharply and more harshly inside working class communities and whether in, you know, in more middle or upper class uh, communities there's more space maybe for people to find a little bit more expression. I don't know whether that's true or not. It's just a question really. Um, and then the question about what people are worth to the revolution, it's interesting because I kind of hope that there won't be one thing that we'll all wear whatsoever and because I think if you, I don't really often think an awful lot about what I wear but like every decision that we all make about what we choose to wear, what clothes that we might be attracted to, it, it probably is shaped by some kind of social relation around us. Maybe we saw someone that we were really inspired by or maybe there was a moment that like, you know, had some happy memory and some of that's probably quite subconscious on one level. So I hope that um, the struggles that we'll, I, I hope that we'll see things that we can't even predict, you know, in a way that comes out of what we'll all wear to the revolution because hopefully it will come out of this incredible explosion of kind of struggles, um, you know, that, that we haven't kind of seen in that scale. And finally, I just think there was another interesting thing about uh, what was in that video clip is that sense that we have, you know, probably particularly socialists or whatever, where you, on, even on some level, if you don't think about it a lot, what you choose to wear or not wear or how much you choose to think about what you wear is almost like a bit of a decision about how you identify in the system and your political ideas. But actually, there's this constant attempt, like you said, like a really calculated attempt by the fashion industry bosses um, to, you know, steal that back away from us and steal back because I think it's a really expressive thing. But at the same time, you know, that idea that being determines consciousness and that, you know, history is a history class struggle, I think that's constantly something that's at play. Um, so we should just keep coming up with imaginative ideas and tearing up and stealing back what they, uh, what they try to tell us to wear. Yeah, I think one of the things that people need to remember is that, you know, um, over the years, you know, people who are in their 30s and 40s, you know, um, dressed differently throughout the year. So um, in the 70s, you know, women who are 40, they dress a particular way. And then as, you know, years have gone by, um, you know, women particularly and men have started to dress a bit younger. Um, 
you know, the, the, somebody made a comment about you know the Black Panthers being overboard. I'm sorry, but you know that that is that that was their identity, and you know every 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 political group or whatever group has a particular style so you know that's why you know the, the black panthers dressed in with the blackberry and the black jackets it was their style it was to identify them as a, you know a way of saying well look, this is who we are this is how we're going to dress and, and and this is our uniform um but yeah going back to um you know the, the way that you know people of certain ages dress you know over the years you know people have gotten more and more fashionable you know somebody of my of my age group I'm in my 40s you know I, I don't dress the same way as you know somebody who um was my age and that, the same way that they're dressed in the 70s or the 50s so we so over the years you know fashion has actually gotten younger for people in their 50s and their 40s and even in their 60s and 70s um my other thing as well is that, you know, sometimes clothing can be quite dangerous in the sense that, you know, we've got young people dressing in a sexualized way. And it can be dangerous because certain older people can actually take that the wrong way. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, but with regards to uniform, you know, people... If people are in a particular group, they are going to dress in a particular way to identify them. So no uniform... Is over is overboard. It's just to identify who they are. Yeah, just quick, quickly, a couple of things. Uh, I've got a friend who works with Victoria's Secrets, a young friend of mine, and when she first started working there, the level of transphobia, because actually the boss is a transphobe, was horrendous. Uh, when she eventually came out as gay and married her wife, actually it's very different in her shop now, because what she says to the, the, the folks in her shop, if a trans woman walks in that, that, that door, you make them more welcome than any other person, because their journey has been much, much harder. And I do think that's an important message in terms of what retail workers on the ground can do, despite what they're saying at the top. The second thing, when you were talking about it, I was just thought, it reminded me, when the, the Calais camp was in existence, I had, to, I had to help some Eritrean young women get a tent, get some food, get a cooker, get, you know, the, the basic things. And I got home and I got, there must be something else I can do. There must be something. I, I, can't, I couldn't think. And then eventually I got it. They were teenage girls. What do teenage girls need more than, than anything in the world? They need pretty things. So I put a call out on Facebook. Come on, sisters. I need some pretty things for girls. Some young women who are stranded in Calais. They've got, they've got a, a, a tent. Uh, they've got a, a cooker, etc. But they need some. Within, two, within 24 hours, I had three boxes of scarves, lipsticks. Joy, and it was that thing about, what do we want? Yes, we want bread. But we want the bloody roses too. And thank you for giving us the roses, comrades. The woman up the back with the, the hat on. Hi. Uh, I guess I'd just like to express my own frustration growing up with the fashion the way it is. Um, obviously, the more sportswear was a thing when I was younger, but that's people even younger than me now, born in the 2000s, they really got into that. What I had is um, prepackaged third wave feminism telling me that if I wear this a certain way, I'm being empowered, but they're just selling it as back again and again and again. I uh, saw eyeliner sharp enough to kill a man, like, every time I went in a store, that's what it said. And that, that's, that wasn't what I'm about. Not saying that eyeliner isn't good, but I didn't hear anything about actually trying to improve our situations. And I'd also like to point out, obviously, people should be able to wear what they want, but you've got to remember the what the fashion industry is doing right now to younger girls and girls my age, we're supposed to look as young as possible. Some uh, fashion, in, fashion uh, companies that I used to follow, they've started doing Lolita photo shoots and they put pigtails on and they're sucking lollipops in their mouths and they've made sure they've got like baby girl on them and they try and make their models look as young as possible and I just think it's, it makes you feel gross inside. And uh, I, I do worry for younger people as well, having to go through that. It's, it, it just concerns me a bit. I'm concerned. Thanks very much for um, And Jazz? Great talk. Really enjoyed it. Um, I just want to say a little bit more about, yeah, how fashion is a symbol of resistance. Also wearing a 68 shirt of symbol... Uh, the beauty is in the streets. I think one of my favourite shirts. Um... 
just pointing that out. And uh, yeah, but just about the, particularly about the hijab being a symbol of resistance, um, I was actually involved in a meeting here at QM uh, last year, and we talked about uh, is women, in, women and Islamophobia, because particularly women, Muslim women, because you can, they're more identifiable, they're at the, uh, they face the brunt of racism at the moment. And it's interesting because one woman in the group, uh, she actually wears a hijab to uni, she's uh, head of um, one of the uh, societies, and she, um, she sees it as a political statement wearing the hijab, but actually at home she removes it because her parents were concerned about her wearing the hijab, and that's how sort of entrenched, uh, how much Islamophobia has kind of leaked into society and into the families because they were, like, worried about her getting attacked. So she has this sort of... She said she sort of has two identities where she wears a hijab as resistant and then around her family she doesn't, so they don't worry, which I find worrying. Um, yeah, so I find... And also there's that really powerful image of the Sudanese woman in the Su Sudan Revolution standing on the van and wearing a hijab, and I think that's such a powerful image because also it goes against... Absolutely rails against everything he, where they're saying here about women being, you know, submissive and all this kind of thing if they wear a hijab. So, yeah, I just want to make a point about that, how actually it can really be part of transforming. Fashion can help to transform uh, uh, the way we view people in resistance as well. Thank you. And uh, down front, and this will be our last contribution. I mean, I, I thought that the meeting was fantastic. And actually, it's one of those meetings where you can break it down into lots of little meetings, can't you? There's other areas that you want to explore. There's that, the whole political economy about fashion, but also, you know, which you spoke very well about, but also fashion as carriers of ideology, which, which is fascinating, opens up all sorts of things. Because clearly there's, there's, there, are, there are elements of fashion that are deliberately adopted as a political statement, as you said, with the Black Panthers. And certainly, I, I think Black Panthers were fantastic. And that, that image just struck fear into the fucking racists and, you know, all, all, all credit to them. Um, and we're, we're well aware of, of that. I mean, Trotsky um, was, was quite insistent that the people on his, uh, his train, that, that, you know, during the Civil War, wore leather, leather jackets because he said leather makes people look imposing. You know, we're here as carriers of the authority of the revolution. So, you know, it's always been part, of, uh, and we've always had an understanding of the political implications behind clothes. But clothes also carry ideology, you know, in a, in a, in a non-overtly political way. Um, and I, I know we've discussed this before, Rina, but for me, the big eye-opener was the, the, this phenomenon of the, the sapeurs in the Congo, um, living in uh, very, very but very, very poor areas of the Congo, you know, in slum areas, but they look fantastic. It's a group of, of men, you know, mostly young men uh, who, who, who've got work, but spend all their wages on looking as absolutely sharp as possible. They call themselves, you know, there's subgroups like the Piccadilly Boys. I mean, if they saw the real Piccadilly, they'd be very disappointed, but they, they associate with elegance. Um, you know, they, they spend a, a week's wages on a Havana cigar that they never smoke. Because that's not the point of it. The point is to show that it's, it's their resistance uh, 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 against the poverty and their assertion of their dignity in that. And it, uh, it's a fantastic uh, phenomenon. I, I want to tie it, just to finish, tying it with what Yuri, Yuri uh, has said and Julie said about the, the, the tribes. Because, you know, I think we, we have lost something. I mean, if, you know, growing, and I think it's, it's, it, it's as much to do with... Um, the, the austerity and much, as much to do with the, the end of the long boom as anything else because you can see the tribes of, in, in, in Britain, the, the different teenage tribes, right from the beginning of the end of the war um, Ken Russell did a fantastic shoot for Picture Post of teddy girls, not teddy boys and they're, they're in the rubble of post-war London they look fantastic There's, you know, they must have scoured, scoured the bloody back shops for for uh, you know, uh, different ornaments and different clothing, you know they are, they are individual in the way the teddy boys weren't. You had to have the particular you know, you know ties and, and whatever. But it, and, and that morphs into the, you know things through the sixties, like the, 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 the you know the, the Teds, the Mods, the Rockers, the Skinheads, the you know the, the, the punks and whatever. And it, it sort of stalls at the same time as the you know as, as the, the, the boom stalls and up, the, and, yeah, and the bubble of of, of, of Thatcherism stores, and you know, I'd like perhaps you can say something about that as well. Thanks very much. And sorry we can't get everyone into the conversation, there's lots there. Um, we'll bring... um, 
Thank you, everyone. That was a really good discussion and some really interesting ideas. I think every time I've done this meeting, it's thrown up different questions, and I think um, I'm glad that um, it's thrown up these questions. In answer to Yubi's question, is fashion more homogenized? Um, I'd say yes. I think that what's happening is that um, if you look at the fashion brands now like H&M and Zara, they're just huge. I mean, they have stores all over the world. I think that, you know, the rich are getting richer. These companies are getting bigger. I think what it is, is that you have teenagers from London to Lebanon to Lima buying in the same stores. They're being sold the same stuff. So I think that, I think, I'd, I mean, that's, that's my understanding of it. I might be wrong, but I think that previously you had people buying from lots of, of smaller, of, you know, that when it was more broken up than you had. Um, but it's the same with music as well. I work with, um, with young people, and I ask them, often ask them, like, what music they're into, and people say, oh, all kinds, whereas I, when I was reading about this thing about how maybe 30 years ago people were much more strict about what they about what they listen to. And I, I wonder if that's because capitalism is just trying to sell more and more and more to more and more people. So they're just, you know, so, you know, where do you go from there? It, everyone just has to then be consuming everything, if that makes sense. But particularly in fashion, I think that the, the conglomerates are getting bigger. Um, I'd just like to thank the um, comrade, has he gone? The guy from Egypt, who said, yeah, who said, um, he was talking about that, the, um, the guy who's in prison in Egypt for wearing a, a yellow vest. I think that's, you know, really heartbreaking and a perfect example of how clothing can can become so kind of toxically um symbolic to the to the ruling class that they will actually imprison people for for putting on a garment i think fashion and style there's a lot of contradictions actually um fashion and style it is important it's a creativity which is important but it also isn't important in the sense that there are other bigger things. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, when I've been thinking about the whole fashion question, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of little contradictions there. And I think this, this individual versus the collective thing is, a, is a, an example of that. And um, so, for example, like one thing can be liberating for somebody, you know, taking off the hijab and can, can be a liberation for one person. But then if you're told to do it, it's not a liberation. There's lots of contradictions like that. Um, to go to the thing about sizeism and ageism, it, you're right, I didn't include it in the talk, and it was one of many things that I did, just didn't have time to cover, but it is a very interesting and um, urgent question. My understanding of the size thing in fashion is that it's a thing, the thing with capitalism is that it, it's exclusive, by nature it's exclusive, and it's obsessed with youth, and I don't think the fashion industry is the only one that's obsessed with youth. I think if you look at the film industry as well, I think women are usually very thin and usually very young when they're successful. Um, but the fashion industry particularly, because it's this thing about... I also think it's true that nobody bought anything, nobody ever is sold anything if they're truly happy. Like, we have to be a bit miserable to buy this stuff. So it's one of the ways that fashion, I think, does deliberately make people feel bad about themselves. And it's creating... I mean, they say, oh, it's about dreams. You often hear that from fashion. It's about selling a dream. Yeah, you're, you're, show, you're, you're doing this, like, aspirational thing where you're showing me what I'm not in order that I might buy it to make myself feel closer to that ideal. That's kind of the basic model. And so, you know, business model of, of fashion. And so I think it's right that you have... You know, for each person who, for, for everybody who feels good about themselves, you have the contradiction of the reverse of that. So I think that um, example of, um, you know, giving uh, makeup to teenagers in, in Calais or whatever is a really good example of how that might give somebody that little tiny bit of dignity and respect and kind of, you know, making them feel good about themselves in a situation which is obviously awful, but then in, a, in, a, in another context being told you must wear lipstick, otherwise you're ugly. I mean, that's obviously not... Um, giving anybody any any dignity. I think the thing about drag is really interesting, and I think I probably didn't do it justice. I, th I know that it's a massive debate, and it's very um, it's much more complex than I probably have time to go into now. Um, but just to say that I absolutely agree with you that there's been a commodification of it. And it's a bit like Yuri's talk. Yuri and Liz did this amazing talk about hip-hop last night, about how hip-hop was taken from something that was raw and artistic and brilliant and just kind of commodified. And, and you look at this throughout culture. I mean, what you've got here, same with fashion, same with music, what capitalism does is it just needs ideas, doesn't matter what the idea is, and then it kind of packages it out and gives you the Disney version in order to make money. And then it's on to the next thing. And it doesn't care about what it's actually talking about. So it doesn't care about real trans people, real drag artists or whatever it is. It's just like that's the thing to make TV shows about at the minute or whatever it is. You know what I mean? There's kind of a, um, something which really um, 
spits out culture back at us. Uh, Caitlin Jenner is another example of um, a trans woman who's um, in the public eye, and she's somebody who's incredibly rich. Meanwhile, working-class trans people are obviously um, completely left out. Um, and the thing about um, Mulberry getting rid of the handbags, that's, that's right. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, work is done by um, fashion brands to destroy stock that's unsold. Burberry as well got in, um, were in the headlines for it as well. And again, it's just part of, I think that's a really good example of just the mad machine of capitalism. It doesn't make any sense. We're just producing fashion. And the thing, it's unlike music. You can make music and it doesn't take up sp physical space in the world. I mean, I guess... The so the recording cut out here. But what I was going to say is that music does not take up physical space, whereas clothing does. So the problem of a system like the one we have today in the fashion industry is that producing all this clothing just to throw it away again means that it's creating huge environmental problems, both in making it and in getting rid of it. And in order to do it cheaply, people are being enslaved in jobs with incredibly low wages at almost every point in the process. And then, of course, you have these silly situations, as with the Mulberry and Burberry examples, where unsold stock is just destroyed. And that's a problem across consumer capitalism. In food production, there are examples of food being wasted while people are starving to death just to protect the profit line. So where do we go from here? I think it's more than an individual problem, but we can start by trying to know more about the fashion industry and buying clothes that are produced as ethically as possible. I think buying second-hand clothes is a great option, and swapping clothes with friends is a good idea. Of course, consuming less is something we can all strive for, but I don't think that there's any shame in pursuing a style. It's not anti-socialist. As a revolutionary, however, I think the solution extends beyond the individual, we need to overhaul the economic system. Under socialism, practices common in eco-fashion would be standard and workers would be paid fairly. And we have enough stuff already. We can take inspiration from designers like the one I interviewed on my podcast, Bethany Williams, who takes unwanted garments and recycles them into new ones. Under socialism, we would not be so alienated from the skill of making clothes so more of us will be empowered to make our own. Today, when it comes to style, our creativity is restricted, for many of us, to how we shop. You get compliments for having bought something nice. Instead, style and good clothing would be an ethically produced way of equipping ourselves to live and an artistic expression of our true potential as individuals. Future Heist is recorded and produced by me, Rena Neve Smith, with original music by Benjamin Tassi, artwork by Fleur Beck, and sound editing by Jibran Farah. Special thanks to Chloe Vasegi and Joshua Lowe's Challenge. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at future underscore heist. Thank you.